Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name is Dan Martin, special effects artist and reverby podcaster, and I am joined as ever by my lovely co-host. Sam Ashurst, and I'm a writer, I'm a director, and how do I get eyes like those? Um, yeah, we're watching Pitch Black. We've watched it, uh, and we're going to talk about it. That's how this podcast works. Dan, Pitch Black. Revelationary. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm normally better at these intros if this is uh, your first time listening to the Arrow Video podcast, and it might well be because uh, Pitch Black is a relatively uh, popular film. It's probably the closest we've ever got to a blockbuster, isn't it? Yeah, this in the game, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, but this feels more blockbustery. You know, it's got monsters and spaceships and Vin Diesel. It's uh, definitely our first Vin Diesel film. It's definitely our first Vin Diesel film. It's an interesting one to to jump straight into talking about the the sort of the, the making of the film rather than the narrative. Uh, you say it feels like a blockbuster, and I definitely agree with you. But revisiting it, it's interesting because it feels like one of those like slightly lean films that was maybe delivering more than it ought to be able to yes i tell you what man yeah um revisiting this film i liked it so much more than i was expecting um because this isn't one that was i know it's got a real kind of cult following and the character of riddick has quite a big fan base yeah and i I, don't get me wrong I, i certainly enjoyed it when i saw it the first time but it's not one that i've revisited over and over again so this may well be the first rewatch since uh, the first time i saw it and i think the years have been pretty kind to it um yeah which, I think which isn't so. often the case yeah it's it's certainly uh it it uh, but i i think that that's possibly an artifact of it being a, a slightly smaller film it's like a 20 exactly, million yeah, dollar yeah, film which yeah. feels like you know it's a lot of money but it's not a huge amount of money for something like this no something way that's that's got so much reach and and again getting ahead of ourselves slightly like talking about the like looking at the extras and seeing Tui talk about um like how they approached it there's he, he taught, it was obviously in very good hands it's only his third picture at this point but he knows how to uh he knows how to work with the tools available to him I yeah. think is the best way to put it. And right at the beginning of one of the vintage featurettes, like the behind-the-scenes footage, there's a lovely shot of someone just stood up with a bit of card, <laughs> like a sort of a shadow in front of a light, and then it yeah. pulls back to a wide, and you see all the, the characters there. And it's like, oh, yeah, no no, like laser-cut metal gobos in yeah. here, just like a bit of foam core on a stick. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, and actually... Um, you know, we are obviously going to get deeper into the extras because there are just so many. I mean, this release isn't so much a, a Blu-ray as it is an archive. Literally everything you need to see or hear about Pitch Black is here, it, making it a really incredible release. And um, yeah, because of the scale of the film and because of the depth of the extras, this is surprisingly to me um, one of those discs that does operate as a kind of mini film school. Um, you know, normally with these kinds of bigger films, the extras are pretty kind of surface level. Um, I think that's probably fair to say. It's a lot of kind of promo stuff, um, you know, stuff from the press kit. Um, whereas this actually, like you say, you know, whether it's the sort of behind the scenes stuff visually or the commentaries, you do learn a lot about filmmaking through this release. 
Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. There's there's a lot of very in-depth stuff, and it's not just those like on-set puff pieces where the actors are being like, oh, well, it's so nice to work with such and such. Yeah, and, 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 and don't get me wrong, that stuff kind of is here in places, especially um, the stuff that's kind of pointing towards um, the sequel. Um, there's some stuff, there's a whole section on this disc that's kind of from a, a 2004 special edition, and it's kind of hilarious because like there's this one bit that did you watch the intro David Tui's intro from the 2004 release? It's amazing. Basically, it, it's not very long, but it's <laughs> it's got Tui kind of sat on the desk um, of the kind of the editing bay, right? Sitting oh. with an editor who's Oh, editing. maybe I did watch this. Yeah, Is this yeah. the one where he goes, when we made Pitch Black, all I was thinking about was how to survive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's something really kind of Alan Partridge about it because like he's kind of instructing the editor and the editor seems a tiny bit pissed off that this is happening and then he kind of kind of turns to the camera and it's a bit like oh hello I didn't see you there um it's yeah it's really funny um but yeah okay so I think yeah. I, I haven't seen that but there's another extra from the same edition right that was obviously shot in sequence with that because right, right. there's a there's a bit later where he's again like because he's the thing is he looks younger in those than he does in the behind the scenes stuff from from Pitch Black where that's, he's all like grizzled and bearded. That's money for you, Dan. <laughs> that's money and shaving. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do look like a destitute fisherman. The <laughs> but yeah, he's he's all uh, he's talking about how like the luxury of having more money, and he's basically just promising everyone that uh, that Chronicles of Riddick is is bigger, it's fancier. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then and then they kind of went back to their roots with Riddick, didn't they? I mean, I actually haven't seen Chronicles of Riddick or Riddick, so I've I've kind of just sort of oh yeah, no, I, I, like I say, like I really really enjoyed Pitch Black, but you know, I I, I was never like. A, a big fan of, of of the character or anything. I mean, he's a cool character. Don't get me wrong, but not enough to to watch a couple of badly received sequels. Um, have you seen them? I have seen both of them. I'm not a massive fan of either of them. Right. There are some lovely stories from the set of Chronicles of Riddick that mm. are my favourite thing about the film. So I, I don't know how much you know or how much our listeners know about Vin Diesel's backstory as an actor. But I have I have heard it said that he basically got buff because he was bullied because he was a massive nerd. Yeah, and he stayed a massive nerd. He's just a big buff nerd now. <laughs> and so he was on the set of Chronicles of Riddick, and he was organising like a D and D session with some of the crew. And it turns out that Judy Dench is also a massive fan of D and D. I love it because she. I, and again, this is half remembered, but. I, I, if memory serves, she got into it because I think her grandchildren really like it and she DMs for them. Oh, God, imagine having DM Dench on your yeah, table. Exactly. Jesus Christ. Yeah, the Dench master. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so apparently her and, and Vin used to, used to D&D together uh, after hours on the Chronicles of Riddick, which is definitely my favourite thing about that film. <laughs> Look, if there are any kind of artists out there or, or t-shirt makers, I've never wanted this before from this podcast, but uh, my God, I would love a Denchmaster t-shirt, um, even though technically it's not an Arrow film. Get on it. <laughs> uh, that's my new favourite word. <laughs> There's a web series called Harmon Quest 
in which Dan Harmon plays D and D with some friends, and normally like a comedy, like a comedian guest uh, player, and then they and they play on stage live, uh, and then they have parts of it animated. Um, so you see like an animated version of whatever their D and D quest is, and it's it's really fun. I've only seen a couple of episodes, but it's really fun. Um, I would love to see a version with Judy Dench and Vin Diesel. Oh my god, that would be the dream. And speaking of of animation, and to get it back to the disc, um, yeah, the the there is something really special on here. Um, Dark Fury, which is a, a sequel um, to Pitch Black, and kind of you know ties up the the loose ends um, that that are there in Chronicles of Riddick. And uh, I'd never heard of this, you know, super, super fan that I am, but I absolutely love Peter Chung. I love the Aeon Flux series, obviously not the movie. And so to have this pop up and, and not just, you know, the cartoon, which uh, is just it just looks so good. It's a beautiful piece of work. Even that has extras. And so there was a, a beautiful five minute interview with uh, Peter Chung who is maybe the biggest genius on this disc. Um, and so, yeah, really nice to get insight into his working method on top of everything else. Um, what did you think of all that stuff? Um, yeah, I loved it. I loved that. I saw this when it was, when it was sort of first around. Um, and I remember I, I interviewed Peter for the Animatrix release. Oh, shit, no way. Um, and, and I got to sit and chat with him. Uh, for a while before we started the interview. And I, I mentioned um, Phantom uh, and this. Uh, and, and, uh, and you know, he did the... He was the designer for the intro sequence to the Rugrats as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so we're just talking about, like, all of his stuff and how his art and style, like, bleeds into other, other stuff, like when he's an artist for hire rather than just doing exclusively his own stuff. Mm. I, I just love his aesthetic so much. I think yeah, he's such, a, such a, an amazing designer. And it's interesting because I think that the the production design, especially the planet design and the and the sort of the skeletal creature remains and all that kind of stuff in Pitch Black actually has a owes quite a debt to Mobius. Yeah. Uh, and then thinking about Chung as a sort of an addition to that equation, it's the the animation Dark Fury. Like the movie, there are some places where the digital effects maybe date it a little bit. The the shot of the spaceship being wound in, yeah, on uh, in Dark Fury is pretty ropey. Yeah, but the uh, but the, the the still animation and it's done relatively cheaply. I think it's, it tops out at about twelve frames a second. The animation, but yeah. it's absolutely beautiful. Um, it, his drawing is is really nice. Like his 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 design is really nice. It's all uh, it was all animated in Korea. Um, which is a, a cost-saving decision. Korea's um, animation uh, heritage not being quite as strong as, as some of the rest of Asia. And if you if you look at things that aren't people's faces, you see some some slightly ropey fill, uh, especially hands. Um, right. But I, but but what you do still get is that really beautiful like distorted anatomy that Chung is so like known for. Hmm. Uh, and especially in the last third of the um of the short of dark fury it's only about half an hour long in the in the last third everyone gets kind of like bristly and wider yeah like the joints get more broken and it almost feels like mike mahone has kind of come in and and become part of the aesthetic as well there's this really beautiful kind of like almost 
like more blocky version yeah, of Chung's work. It's very expressive I, of, of yeah. the, the tone and, and the, the mood of that moment. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's great. Um, and yeah, you mentioned the elephant kind of graveyard, the bones. Um, and for me, that's kind of, it's just another wonderful, like, this film has lots of ideas, you know, way more than, than a, a sort of a film of its type, um, a studio film of its type. And one of those lovely ideas, I just love that moment where it looks like they're looking at trees and then they come over the ridge. Yeah, and it's, and it's, it's the ke- spines, skeleton. the vertebra. It's, yeah. it's just so well done. And I was going to ask you about the, the kind of the mix of practical effects and CGI in this film, because... I know it's that that element has aged to a certain extent, but I still think it looks pretty good. Yeah, I th- I think that actually a lot of that digital stuff is really solid. There's, yeah. I mean, so first of all, you've got to remember that they were shooting on film, um, uh, with a lot of digital environmental stuff, which is yeah. very tricky. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting looking at some of the behind the scenes stuff about the like the composite layers, and watching the tracking things they use. Because back then it wasn't just a case of like you know motion control and a couple of dots. There's like loads and loads of things to help them like track space. Hmm. It's really really beautiful. Yeah, I I think if I mean if you go back through Tui's uh, like relatively limited canon as a director up until this point, even his like even the lower budget stuff he was doing before. I think his first movie, uh, Grand Tour, which was released in the UK as Timescape ended up being, I think it was a TV movie in the States. Um, but that's got loads of really fucking great miniature effects in it. Like uh, mm. a town gets hit by a meteorite in it. Yeah, there's loads and loads of really good stuff there. There's a, a massive gas explosion at one point. Um, and then the arrival, the Charlie Sheen picture, like the super 90s Charlie Sheen picture yeah. he did. Again, that's got stop motion moments in it. It's got some CGI, like composite work in it. Yeah. It's got some brilliant miniatures. And so like, he's obviously been someone who really wants to go to the toolbox and pick whatever is the best thing. Yeah, and and, and you're right. And I think it's kind of very important that this isn't a, a first-time filmmaker and he does that have that experience and confidence because... There's a kind of wonderful story in the big interview with him on this disc where he talks about turning down a big star who liked the script. Yeah. And and this is a fantastic script, so I can understand why it, it appealed to this person. Uh, but uh, this, this sort of big action star was rumoured to be difficult to work with. And so he he turned he turned it down and basically turned down the opportunity to make the movie. They said on the call, the producer said, look, you know, if you cast this guy or the film doesn't happen, he's like, well, the film doesn't happen then. Um, and so I think that is half confidence, half experience of knowing that, you know, someone who's difficult to work with and who knows what Charlie Sheen was like to work with, but someone who's difficult to work with can sink a movie. Who do you think it is, Dan? I, I, I know who I think it is, but who do you think that, that action star is? I don't know. When I was watching that extra, I did sort of like think, oh, I, what I should do is look at the year that it was made yeah, and then like look at who the biggest action stars that they could have had available to them, like realistically on a, on a $20 million film. Like just do a bit of forensics, and then I didn't do that, so I don't know. I, I I've I've got a theory. I've got a theory, and I, I think that probably you know if they had cast this person, the budget probably would have gone up. But um, I think, and you know, this is allegedly, and you know, I, I Arrow 
video are not our responsible. Opinions are our own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it might have been Bruce Willis. He seems, oh, God. He seems the logical choice. I mean, he's, he's bald. <laughs> he's bald. And, um, you know, it, he is a... Let's not say difficult to work with. Let's just say that he is, you know, very particular about the way he, he goes about his business. Um, you know, which which in some instances is to be admired. Bruce Willis's lawyers, <laughs> um, it is to be admired. So anyway, I let's must get, say that let's decision get off that. has obviously robbed us of a scene where Riddick plays the saxophone inside <laughs> a space whale skeleton. Oh, absolutely! Do you know what? We haven't done the plot yet, Dan. Um, this might be the longest we've gone without doing the plot. We really went straight into this. Do you want to give a rough idea of what this is about for anyone who's still listening? Um, yeah, okay. The <laughs> uh, the cryostasis residents of a long-distance uh, haulage ship are awoken when their vessel crash lands on a planet with three suns. Uh, the remaining survivors realise they have uh, an opportunity to get off the planet when they find a seemingly abandoned uh, settlement on the surface but things take a turn when, A, a very dangerous criminal being transported to uh, a space prison turns out to have been amongst the survivors, and, B, uh, they seem to be headed for a once-in-a-24-year cycle eclipse, which will allow the uh, photosensitive apex predators that normally live under the surface of the planet dominion uh, above ground. Yes, that is an excellent plot. I'm glad I asked for that. That is brilliant. Um, and and yeah, that the 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 cast. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the cast because um, this is a diverse movie um, to a, a relatively surprising degree for the time. Um, it probably partly explains why it was so successful um, outside of the brilliant high concept. Um, that that kind of. Yeah, I, I think diversity is, is always good um, if you want to make money, contrary to some studios' opinions. Uh, and they're engaging characters with interesting conflicts. Um, like, if this was a different film, you'd be waiting for Riddick to show up when in all the scenes he's not in. Um, but I actually really enjoy spending time with these people. Um, there's a couple of really nice B-plots, and, and that's actually really important because the premise that the film was sold off the back of doesn't really kick in until after the midpoint i think like it's it's, it's really it's almost the, the exactly final the midpoint right okay it's, it's, yeah it's about it's about five minutes past the midpoint right but, i mean it's it's not a short film no um but i think what's interesting so you've got the original screenplay by jim and ken wheat who most of you will know from ewoks battle for endor exactly um, <laughs> um but their version of the screenplay which was brought to tui to kind of punch up because his his main credentials are as a writer um, he was told he could direct it if he did a good enough job, like, you know, making it fancy. But the version they brought him didn't have Riddick in it. Holy but, shit. Yeah, exactly. But what you have to remember is that he had done an abandoned draft of Alien 3. Right. And the Riddick character, not in name, was kind of in his draft, which is about a female protagonist and a, uh, and a male criminal having to team together to get off a prison planet, like, well, a sort of research laboratory planet slash prison planet that's being overrun by xenomorphs. Wow, that makes so much so sense. That so makes he's so taken much sense. that, 
which is why we have a strong like such a like cool female like captain character because mm. they were at the time when they when he wrote his draft of the Alien 3 script or his version of the Alien 3 script Sigourney wasn't going to be coming back so they wanted a new female character oh that's interesting right okay because I was just speculating well okay spoiler alert for Pitch Black and Alien 3 everyone skip ahead one minute if you don't want to hear this but um, yeah I was just wondering if that draft would have been a passing the torch where Sigourney would have been the Ryder Mitchell character and she would have gotten carried off at the end and she would have um, handed the reins over to Riddick well, she, for the future she franchise. Still, but, she yeah. still kind of has that crucifix fall at the end of Alien 3. Like, she still dies at the end of Alien that, 3. That's, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. So um, I just wondered if that was kind of in the contract and this was one way that they could have gone. Um, because, yeah, that's really interesting. Um yeah, that's really interesting. And and let's 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 really make this clear. Um Vin Diesel, however you feel about him now and however you feel about the kind of reputation he's developed. Obviously, you know, there's all the stuff on the Fast and the Furious where, you know, like they've all got it in their contract that they can't lose a fight and and all that kind of nonsense. Um but I kind of I personally think that he's earned the right to all of that because this guy is a fucking star like he is a little bit camp in this film but incredibly charismatic um not that there's anything wrong with being camp but it's just you know and actually it kind of adds a quality to him that makes him a different kind of action star that campness i think um yeah i don't know there's just something really special about him in this film um i really really love him I considered recommending it later as one of the based ons, but it's so different. I felt like it wasn't an acceptable uh, mention. But did you ever mm. see Boiler Room? Yes, I did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like like I say, he's earned everything he's got. Um, yeah, he's actually got the chops. Yeah, and I, you know, fucking good luck to him if he's found a job where he just gets to fucking sit in a car against the green screen and <laughs> <laughs> and grunt a bit, and they give him millions of dollars. I don't yeah. blame him for that. And have, you know, arguments with his co-stars. I love it. Um, and yeah. Rather, um, he were doing the one for me, one for them situation. I'd love to see more stuff like Boiler Room, more stuff like, like I mean, you know, more stuff like Pitch Black. And by yeah. that, I mean not Chronicles of Riddick. Because <laughs> I yeah. don't think Chronicles of Riddick is particularly like Pitch Black. No. Um, I'm interested in the fourth one that's coming up, um, that's been announced, where he returns to his home planet. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, I haven't actually even heard of that. Um Yeah. Tell, tell us tell us a little bit more about that well it's it's like really i've kind of said all i know so right, right. the so his uh his planet is called furia so if you remember in the in the the peter chung animated short yeah uh when he's so in that film in uh he's shown around a, a gallery of uh most the universe's most wanted individuals who've been sort of cryo frozen in this sort of like torturous state um, not unlike uh, Black Lizard, which I recommended a few episodes back. <laughs> nice. Um, uh, where they're, they've become human statues and they're aware of time passing, but they're unable to, like, physically, it's like thousands of hours, thousands of years a day, like, you know, um, cool. this this crazy experience. And, uh, and he notices that one of them is Furian, which is his race. He's not human, Riddick, he's Furian. And so, yeah, then, so they did Chronicles of Riddick, which is basically a Stargate movie. Um, and then, and about prison planets. So there's a lot of Alien 3 kind of coming into that as well. Mm. Um, and then they did Riddick, which is almost like a one-hander and is a bit disappointing. Right. Oh, wow. I'd say the, com 
I'd say the computer game is the best sequel. The best, like right. not counting the anim- not counting the animated short. I'd say the, the computer game is the best sequel to to um, uh, Pitch Black. But then, yeah. So this fourth feature film one, the third sequel, yeah. um, is apparently about Riddick finally returning to f- Furia, and all all I know of it is that nothing can prepare him for what the planet is now like. Ooh. So what, whatever that means. Setup. But that's, that's great, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, let's mention, uh, before we move on, let's mention the cinematographer, because you saying Furia has reminded me of Furiosa, which has reminded me of Mad Max, which has reminded there me we of go. David Egby, um, who was cinematographer on Mad Max and is cinematographer on this. Uh, yeah, it does this a beautiful is, job. I, you know, again, I thought this element would age really badly. Um the sort of the, the the use of uh in camera effects to to suggest an alien world because of the the, the weird lighting from the different suns i thought that was going to age badly i was wrong i think it looks great and it's kind of the closest to representing an alien world kind of properly um i think i've seen for a while um it's one of those rare alien worlds that actually does feel like an alien world, if that makes sense. Well, and it's yeah, and it's really ballsy because it was all done Massively. with the raw negatives yeah. as well. It's not yeah. it's not <laughs> a VFX insane. thing where they just click a filter on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's done. There's a there's a very there's an interesting, albeit terrible, extra feature <laughs> that is a Sci-Fi Channel commissioned oh, short. Jesus. Christ, that is the, the worst thing I did on not, this disc. I did not make it all the way through that, but that I, I is was, indicative of exactly how like shitty things age. <laughs> oh, oh, God, 100%. It's just terrible across the board. I'm glad it's on here. I'm glad I got the chance to see it. And, you know, 99% of the extras on this disc, this exhaustive disc, are of value and are enjoyable to experience. But, yeah, there's a little crop on that section of the disc that, that isn't great. And yeah, that sci-fi channel thing is fucking atrocious. Um, so, so yeah. And you know, th- th- there's lots of nice shots in this film. I, I love, um, I love that crash zoom onto Riddick where he sat under the umbrella. Under the umbrella. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just That's so great. good. Yeah, I, I remember yeah. the aesthetic really like, it was one of the first things to sort of blow me away when I first saw it. So I actually this is one of the first times I got to see a preview screening of anything. Oh, wow. Um, and I went to the Odeon in Southampton to see a press screening ahead of time because I was, this was back when I was still doing a bit of journalism. And and I was on a list and I, I got tickets. So I took a friend and we, we went and watched it. And it just, so I saw it at like, you know, 10 in the morning on a Saturday. <laughs> oh, I love those screenings. I love them. Yeah. And I, it just, like, I came out of the cinema into the bright sunlight. And I, I was just love like, that feeling, the, yeah. This is insane. I've just seen something so special, and no one else I know has seen it. Yeah. Like, yeah, it was absolutely blew me away. Well, it's You funny, know, um, sorry. sorry. It's funny no, you no, say no. that, because um, there's a moment on the, the commentary that kind of reminded me of a similar feeling. Um, so there's a, a David Tui, Vin Diesel, and Cole Hauser commentary. Um, and, it, and it's good, like, there are gaps where they watch the film, um, which is weird, as there are three of them together. Um, but when they do speak, it, it is interesting. And, and what kind of reminds me of what you just said is there's a bit at the start where Vin comments on growing up with the Universal logo, growing up with Universal movies, and, and now here he is seeing that logo in front of a film that he was in. Um, and I did some, some writing work for 20th Century Fox 
a long time ago, like I, I, how long, seven years, something like that, six years. And I had to go and see a film at, at the old 20th Century Fox screening room in Soho Square, uh, which is sadly no more. Thank you, Disney. Um, but yeah, the feeling I got seeing that logo play, knowing I was working for them, you know, in a limited capacity, but still, uh, it was kind of indescribable. So yeah, I really identified with that. But have you ever had that, Dan? Because obviously you've you've worked on studio pictures. Um, you know, have you ever had a, a sort of logo goosebump moment? Absolutely. I still have my, uh, I think, day three on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I was oh, given a Jim yeah. Henson's Creature Workshop crew shirt. And I, it's absolutely fucked now. <laughs> <laughs> Like, not because it's covered in silicon and fiberglass resin and, and the same reason that most of my workshop shirts get fucked, but because I've worn it a number of times and the armpits have torn open and the, it started to fade, and now it just lives in the cupboard. Like, I can't wear it, mm. partly because it's borderline indecent, but but also because I don't want it to, to die any further. Yeah. But, you know, they're not there anymore. Like, that, the Camden, the original Henson space is gone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was that was a big moment for me. Was like being like, "Fuck, I've arrived!" Like when I got given the crew shirt. Yeah, that was a big deal. I love it. I love it. Um, and yeah, um, I think that's sort of. Uh, oh, there's one sort of little writing thing that I want to kind of mention that I appreciated this time around. You know, the script is well written. It's a small moment, but I love the bit where um, Cole Hauser says to Riddick. Uh, you're missing the party. Come on, boy, right? Um, and and boy is obviously a word that's that's loaded with racial meaning. It's essentially a slur. I mean, it, it is a slur. Um, and Riddick yeah. re- repeats the line to Jack, but leaves out the boy. And you could read that as respect, um, but it's because Riddick knows she's a girl. Um, he knows that early on in the narrative, and it's just kind of you know, letting her be what she wants to be um, until it, it becomes a kind of narrative moment where um, he needs to call attention to the fact that um, Jack is a girl. So it's foreshadowing, very subtle, but a lovely logical piece of writing. And I think reflects very well on Riddick as a character um, and, yeah. and, and makes it kind of... I know, I know it's a small moment. I know it's like a, a really small thing to focus on, but it feels like it... It, it brings it in line with modern attitudes to trans people, for example. Um, you know, um, not not that, that Jack is necessarily trans. Jack is actually hiding her gender to protect herself. But um, but yeah, I, I just thought I just thought that was a really lovely moment. Yeah, I think that's again that's one of the things that Tui is like you you see that he's got these like hard chops as a as a writer yeah because everything is very well set up and 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 paid off throughout yeah. there's no loose ends um he him and egby actually worked together once before though i don't know if they ever met because egby was the uh, cinematographer on warlock Ah, right. Okay, amazing, yeah. Which Tui had had worked on. But when on the interviews with Tui, um, he doesn't seem to have realised this connection on the disc. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I don't know whether they ever had a conversation about it on set, but if they didn't, uh, it's it's interesting that they, like, you know, me doing a bit of perusing (laughs) research for a podcast, uncover this, and neither of them seem to mention it. Although I will be honest, I haven't 
seen absolutely every second of every extra. Yeah, I mean, it's, so it's possible it, it gets mentioned. It, it's in the days timeline, of, days of stuff. In the timeline, we've got to do this stuff, and you know, you're you're on set of another film at the moment. You know, it's kind of impossible for us to watch every single second on a disc like this, which is just so rich. Um, you mentioned Warlock, which has one of my favourite uh, taglines of all time. Do you know what it is? The the line on the poster. I don't. I don't remember it, the Warlock. It's uh, <laughs> it's the devil also has a son. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant it's brilliant um right should we should we get into recommendations i think i've probably said all i want to say on pitch black other than to say if you haven't seen this film in a while um do give it a go uh i, I found it very very rewarding revisiting it and um yeah uh, it's one of those discs that it's a cliche but it's worth it for the extras alone um genuinely a film school um on a single disc quite incredible yeah um yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's very much worth a revisit it's worth mentioning that both sam and i watched the blu-ray version uh ara have also released a 4k edition yes um i'm hoping to be able to upgrade my home kit in the near future so that when we do when we talk about stuff that has 4k releases um i can have like per- first person insight into what that's like um but i have checked out some responses online and it sounds like it's very positive like people are you know being very uh very excited about the yeah that that sort of like ultra high definition release um we gave away uh, a couple of issues uh, a couple of copies of that on the live podcast that we did for fright fest a while ago so if we any did. of our listeners who received those have watched it in 4k maybe they would like to email us or tweet us um to let us know what the the difference is like Absolutely, yeah, please do. Great, right, let us go into recommendations based on this film. Now, I'm pretty confident that I'm safe this week, but who knows. Uh, and I've got a feeling I know one of yours just because of a repeated phrase that, that you said. But let's oh. let's see, let's see. Um, Who's going first? Uh, you go first, and I'll, I'll tell you if, if the film that I'm thinking of comes up, and if it doesn't, I'll just give it a mention anyway. So... Uh, okay. What's your first one, Dan? So my first one is from 2008, Mm -hmm. uh, directed by uh, a chap called Ben Rock, Mm -hmm. who has gone on some interesting stuff since. He started off as the production designer on the Blair Witch Project. Fun fact. But it's uh, it's another sci-fi. Hang on, whoa, 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 whoa. Production designer on the Blair Witch Project? Yeah. So he basically put up some tents and stitched together some twigs? Uh, he came up with that incredibly iconic stick figure. All oh, right, yeah. That is the Blair Witch. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. <laughs> and he I'm just, was you know, it, it, I'm sorry, you know, I'm not demeaning this person by saying that, but just the idea of a production designer on the Blair Witch project amuses me because um, it's mostly woods, isn't it? But anyway, um, sorry, that's unprofessional. I've just, I've just finished a film in some woods. Everything <laughs> is, everything is curated. Yes, of course. I'm sorry. Yes, they're very true, very true. <laughs> I take it all back. <laughs> yeah, carry on. Um, but yeah, so like uh, Pitch Black, it's a sci-fi. Like Pitch Black, it's got maybe slightly more violence and action. That's something we didn't talk about was the director's cut versus the theatrical cut. Oh, that's true, actually. I watched the director's cut, but I can't remember I also the watched the cuts. director's cut, so... and I don't know why anyone wouldn't. But <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, um, like the director's cut, it's got some surprisingly violent moments in it, um, and like Pitch Black, it is uh, managing to produce something that is bigger than maybe the budget scale would normally have suggested. What um, is it? Unlike Dan? Pitch Black, it is much much smaller. It is 
I, I, God, I wish I knew what its original title was because I cannot imagine that this is the original title because it's such a shit title. Mm. Um, but I heard about it on the when it was on the festival circuit, and I just didn't fucking bother with it. Right. Um, it's called Alien Raiders. Right. Okay. Yeah. And it's brilliant. Oh, okay. It's actually like narratively, it's probably got more in common with uh, to his uh, ninety six arrival, which we mentioned earlier, the Charlie Sheen picture. Mm. But it's uh, ostensibly, and like normally, I, if I was recommending this to someone outside of the context of it being based on Pitch Black, I'd try and be as oblique as possible and, and say as little as possible. I will mm. say a little bit here, just because it's quite hard not to know some of these things about it going in, because this is how it was marketed. Right. It also has a terrible poster, by the way. It looks like a fucking asylum picture. Um, but it's ostensibly about a... Um, a convenience store like a mini mart out in the middle of nowhere America that gets uh, a robbery happens and then it becomes apparent that it's not a robbery the people doing the robbery think that someone who is currently at the mini mart is an alien in human form fantastic what a fucking setup that is and it and it becomes one of the people in the in the supermarket is a cop who's off duty and so the police end up getting involved and it's uh, a hostage situation um, but it's yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. It's really tense. It's got some great violence in it. It's it's a it's well written. Um, it's open ended enough that you could have a sequel. But it's yeah, it's really solid. It's really good. Great. Uh, I'm, a- I'm gonna... Alien, the Alien Raiders. Alien it's Raiders. On, um, it's on Amazon. It's like four quid to rent on Amazon. Oh, I'm, I'm definitely gonna. I might try and pick up the disc actually. Um, yeah, that that sounds wonderful. Uh, right, my first recommendation that I knew Dan wouldn't go for is Dread. Um, now I know that sounds like a very strange pairing, um, but Pitch Black to me feels very much like a 2000 AD story uh, and a very specific Judge Dread comic called Last of the Bad Guys, um, which appeared in a Judge Dread annual, I think it's 1987, um, and you'll be able to find it in um, one of those Dread collections. Which one is it? I think it's like, I think it's called something like Secret Files or Restricted Files, something like that, Volume 2, um, which whatever it is, uh, whatever graphic novel collection it is that collected all of the stuff from various annuals and, and specials. Um, it's in there and um, yeah it just feels to me like Pitch Black could be in the same shared universe as Dread Um, and I'll take any opportunity to recommend Dread it's a fantastic movie and also Judge Dread comics which are even better so yeah my first recommendation um, an unpredictable one Dread Dan what have you got next uh, so my next one is maybe slightly more predictable for me. Uh, it's from 1992 by Stuart Gordon. Yes, yes, I knew it. Fantastic. Yep, good, good, good. It's Fortress. Yeah, it is. It's because you kept saying Prison Planet, and that put Fortress well, in my head. But, and but, I was like, but I know I it's not. Ref- a, yeah. I'm really referring to Alien. I know, I know, I know, I know. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Fortress is fucking great. If you yeah. haven't seen it, um, it's Christopher Lambert um, of Highlander fame uh, in a sort of Ricky O environment. Although if you haven't seen Fortress, I don't know whether you'll have seen Ricky O. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. but it's got Tommy Bombs in it. <laughs> oh, it's 
It's so um, good. It's yeah, it's, so a, good. it's a sort of a, a new sort of vertical tube supermax prison that uh, a man has been unjustly put into. It's essentially a prison escape movie with loads of like bombastic sci-fi effects from Stuart Gordon. Um, I don't really know how else to sell you on it. It's fucking great. It's incredible. And I actually saw, believe it or not, I saw Fortress on the big screen at, at our local Odeon. This was back in the days when films like Fortress wow. would get a big screen release. Um, and yeah, because I used to be weirdly obsessed with Christophe Lambert for some reason. Um, Christophe Lambert. Yeah. Oh, he's awesome. Um, oh, what a film that is. Great recommendation, Dan. Uh, and yeah, my next recommendation is one that you've probably seen, but uh, Escape from New York. Uh, Lovely. Riddick is basically Snake Pliskin by a different name, and um, Pitch Black does kind of feel like it's put Pliskin into the thing at times. Yeah, you, you, you might think there's literally no one listening to this who hasn't seen Escape from New York, but you'd be surprised by some of the lovely tweets I've had from people who say that when um, Dan and I talk about the one person who hasn't seen a film, that's them. Um, so for you, person who hasn't seen a film um, that, that, that we think everyone's seen, uh, this one, Escape from New York, is a must-watch. It is a treat and a possible vision of a future Kent. Escape from New York. <laughs> I recommend it. Right, should we go into the past couple of weeks? Dan, yes, what, please. Have you, what have you got? So, uh, as people may have been aware, if they've listened to recent episodes, I'm not in the UK. Sam sort of acknowledged it already. I'm over in Malta. Uh, it's why I probably sound a bit more reverby because the flat I'm made in appears to have been carved out of a single block of solid marble, which is <laughs> nice for temperature, but terrible for recording podcasts. Mm. <laughs> So I did what I normally do when I have to go away, uh, but we're still recording the podcast, which was bring a flight case with a PlayStation in it um, and a uh, a CD wallet full of discs that I think are, are going to be fun to fill my, my evenings and days off uh, while I'm away. So uh, I, I put lots and lots of optical uh, media in there and brought it with me. Uh, and one I, I watched the other day, I've seen it before, but not for a, a, a great number of years, is uh, from 1997, Takeshi Miike's Rainy Dog, mm, um, nice. which is the second in the trilogy that Arrow released, um, uh, starting with Shinjuku Triad Society and finishing with Ley Lines. It's my favourite of the three, although I haven't re-watched Ley Lines yet, but I absolutely love it. Turns out, I think possibly my favourite genre is Japanese men you wouldn't think could look after a child being suddenly entrusted with a child. Yep, that, yep. <laughs> Whether, I, yep. Yeah, go on. Lone Wolf and Carb, Kikajuro, yep. Fight yep. Zatoichi, Fight. Like, they're all masterpieces. If you can think of a bad one, don't tell me about it. I'm enjoying this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a very, very solid subgenre, yeah. Um, like a lot of Mike's more serious stuff, and if you're expecting Ichi the Killer, it's not it's not that. Uh, it's much more in keeping with Blues Harp. Um, you know, his more sort of serious dramatic stuff. It deals a lot with immigrant status. In unlike Shinjuku Triad Society, uh, which is about Asia, uh, Chinese criminals in Japan, um, Rainy Dog is about a, a, a Japanese. Yakuza, who's been sort of cut off from his gang, who's now living in uh, in China, and uh, yeah, and about his his sort of life out there, working as a petty hitman for a local crime syndicate. He ends up at the beginning of the film. A woman turns up and is like, "This is your kid. You remember that time we had sex? This is your kid. You have to look after him now." And then she just like fucks off, um, and he's left with this mute young boy. 
um, who he is a very poor father figure for. Those of you who uh, are familiar with Kill Bill but haven't seen this will notice a very, very pivotal moment in Kill Bill was taken from this movie. Um, I won't say it because it's a bit of a spoiler in the film. But, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful movie. Much more staid and sensible than uh, a lot of Miko's more like famous stuff. Mm-hmm. And it actually came out the same year. So um, 97 was the same year that Full Metal Gokudo or Full Metal Yakuza came out. And there is a moment at the beginning of this that feels very similar right. uh, to Full Metal Gokudo. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, Full Metal Yakuza is ostensibly uh, a sort of Yakuza Robocop, but is, is set, but is pivoted on, oh, he's got a huge penis as a joke. <laughs> and the fact that like dicks are censored in Japanese films, like optically censored. Um, and at the beginning of Rainy Dog, uh, a character wakes up on a rooftop and has a piss off the side of a building, and he's got a huge penis that has been just scratched out of the negative. And so, <laughs> so in in Arrow's Blu-ray, you've still got this like beautifully restored image, and then this like hand scratched like all, all the sort of blue and white scrawl of cutting through film neg um, to hide this penis as he absolutely fire hoses it off the side of the building. Love other it. than that, it's an incredibly restrained movie. <laughs> <laughs> love it brilliant brilliant my first one from the past couple of weeks is uh definitely a dan movie um if you haven't caught this one yet dan but you might have because it's um out on blu-ray uh from anti-worlds and i know you're a fan of, of oh yeah guys. Are always good um it's called best before death um it's a documentary about a genius artist named bill drummond who you may know from his music work, most famously with the KLF. Uh, He's now an artist on a 12-year world tour called The 25 Paintings, 2014 to 2025, where he goes to different countries that he's somehow connected to. um, And he performs tasks there, uh, and he plans to continue to perform these tasks until... Uh, the year that he predicts he will die. That sounds a bit bleak, doesn't it? But it's not bleak. It's wonderful. Um, It's absolutely delightful. It's a lovely film. Yeah, I I loved it from the opening moments. Um, And yeah, Drummond is a magnificent person to spend time with. And an inspirational one as well, actually. Um, Because of this documentary, I think my next film is going to make Frankenstein's creature look like I, Frankenstein. Uh, but let's see. I, I found it very inspirational. Um, he really is a very special human being. Um, so, yeah, I really love this one. Great extras. Uh, big recommend if you're in any way interested in outside art, which I am, and I know Dan is as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've got a couple more anti-worlds discs to get through, but they haven't put a foot wrong yet as far no, as I'm it's concerned. great stuff. Uh, wonderful, wonderful label. Dan, um, it sounds like you've seen it. What did you What did you think of Best Before Death? Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. I feel like I must have mentioned it on the podcast, actually. Andy uh, Stark of, mm. of Anti-Worlds and Rook. Who, so I worked for Andy quite a lot in his role as a producer. Um, he was he was my producer on uh, on things, everything from like all of the Ben Wheatley stuff that I've done. Also, Sensor, uh, which I just did with Prano, he was a producer on. Uh, in fabric he was on uh, so oh, I'm yeah. always always very very excited to work with Andy he's got fantastic taste um, and then he started or co-started Anti-Worlds um, 
uh, not that long ago, like it's sort of a year or so ago. I remember him. Yeah. We were in. Oh, he was he was a producer on Possessor as well. We were in uh, sort of chatting about Possessor, and mm. and this is when Anti Worlds was start, first starting to like pick up titles, and he was telling me about all this really exciting stuff he had um, lined up. And then, uh, yeah, he, he just messaged me and said, do you want to go to see a preview screening um, of the Bill Drummond documentary? And I popped along, and it was absolutely delightful. It's, it's really good. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's heartfelt. I think the, the thing is that it's, it's an artist who has touched stardom and then had to come back down to earth. And yeah. That is one of the things that sort of centres him so much. There's a lovely moment when um, this kid in this one of the places he's visiting is like, oh, are you famous? He's like, no, I'm not, not anymore. I'm not famous anymore. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of moments like that in the documentary. And, and yeah, yeah, it does seem that he was sort of relatively traumatised by the fame experience. Yeah, no, I just... It, uh, for, forgive me if you have mentioned it before and, and it hasn't no, stayed it in, in my brain. Um, I know you recommended the Penny Slinger documentary, which is yeah. on my pile of things to watch. But um, That's great. But yeah, and so what's next from you? What else have you watched in the past couple of weeks? I would, just before I go there, I should say, I don't know if it's still on iPlayer, but if you're in the UK, there was a really nice dramatisation of Bill and his band, the KLF, um, uh, and their sort of journey to the decision to burn a million pounds, which is yeah. one of the big art events that they did. Um, but it it plays very much into his relationship with Ken Campbell, who's a, an obsession of mine. Oh, wow. Um, uh, and yeah, so, I, I, fuck, I can't remember what it's called. But if you, you look on iPlayer, it's a sort of a dramatised account of, of Bill and the KLF and their nice. relationship with Ken and their decision to burn a fuckload of cash. <laughs> Lovely. Excellent. But that isn't your recommendation. What is? No, although appropriately, my next recommendation is from Mondo Macabro, which is another distribution label co-owned by Andy Stark. <laughs> so Andy's wow. getting a lot of shoe leather today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it was released under the title Bloodlust. Uh, the original title was Mosquito, uh, although it has the incredibly provocative and somewhat inappropriate title Mosquito the Rapist, if you go on IMDb. It's presented as a true story, uh, and there are some, some interesting extras on there, just sort of like snatched interviews. Uh, the son of the director, the director is no longer with us, son of the director who I think uh, worked on the film, I can't remember in what capacity, to be part of the camera team. Um, yeah, it's uh, a, a, like Rainy Dog, it's about a mute <laughs> character, the little boy in Rainy Dog is mute. This is about a boy who has been rendered mute through uh, historical abuse. Uh, he, we join him as an adult, uh, although he has some flashbacks to his childhood throughout the film, which are probably where the most uncomfortable stuff in the film happens. And he is, uh, it, it's just a sort of an examination of his life in a sort of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer way, but he's not as, like, overt and angry as Henry. He's more weird and reclusive and in love with a woman from a distance, and, uh, and he collects dolls and everyone's mean to him and says he's weird. Uh, he does drink the blood of bodies in a morgue that he has somehow got access to, so there's that. <laughs> <laughs> with a special glass tube that he's got that leaves two little holes in the neck, like a vampire. But yeah, it's a sort of a, just an examination of him. Uh, and it's weird and uncomfortable, like I said. But yeah, there's some stuff in the, uh, in the flashbacks with, with the kids, even though for, for moments that are horrific, it, it's a little obvious that they've body doubled in adults for some shots, but it's, right. it's, it's hard going. Um, but the film itself is fantastic. Uh, it's got some, uh, some surprisingly like, efficient 
special effects. They're not flawless, but they're they're good, especially with his like interactions with the corpses, because he takes a lot of souvenirs in ways that are especially chilling. If you think about some stories that came out about um, some seventies British celebrities who who maybe involved themselves with some corpses, um, or himself, one in speci- in particular. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's just really good. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, it's it's on Blu-ray as Bloodlust. Cool. I'd not seen it before. It's from 1976. Cool. Uh, I think it was the very last film by the director as well, Marianne Vajda. Vajda. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Uh, if a little bit of a tough watch. And my next recommendation is a relatively tough watch, though probably not as difficult. But And it's one that you've probably seen already again, but... Um, in a, a new limited edition Blu-ray, it is The Strangers Second Sight's um, limited edition Blu-ray is out today, and it is an absolute treat uh, for me. I don't know how Dan feels about The Strangers, but uh, for me, this is one of the great modern horror films. Um, one of those movies that has a good reputation, but still feels relatively underrated. You don't really hear people talking about it much online it is one that's referred to as a reference for a lot of kind of low budget horror films like it's very influential but yeah i just i just think it's great and you know part of my appreciation i think comes from the booklet that that comes with this release um which features an essay uh, from anton battelle who is a genius um and uh it, it features the best analysis of the symbolism of the strangers i've i've ever read um it, it's just a brilliant piece of writing all round as ever with anton um and yeah there's a section of the essay that changes the context of the film uh to quite an extraordinary extent and it will make you want to put it on again immediately so yeah great extras as well and you get two cuts, um, theatrical and extended. And yeah, it's just a really nice release of uh, a fantastic and influential film. So The Strangers, out now on limited edition Blu-ray from Second Sight. I recommend it. Dan, how do you actually feel about The Strangers? I uh, I did effects for the second one, so I'm contractually did, yeah. obliged to love it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I... I've, I find it a little hard going. I don't know. I Like, what you just said about the sort of recontextualization of it makes me feel like maybe I should give it another go. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's, it is a nasty film, and, and the new one, Jesus Christ, um, yeah, what's it called? The Dark and the Wicked. Um, fuck me, that is a bleak fest. Um, in a good way. I, I really like the film, but, um, yeah, it, it's nastier than, than The Strangers in a way. Yeah, I d- yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I will give it another go. I, I, I think that one of the reasons it was so influential is because, like, uh, like sort of found footage as a concept or whatever, it felt very achievable because there's actually yeah. not a lot to to say. To use the phrase, "there's not a lot going on," sounds very pejorative, and that's not how I mean it. It's very mm. staid. It's quite minimalist, um, and therefore it feels quite achievable. And I've seen a, a, a huge number of films that are much, much worse. <laughs> than it that are trying to do the same thing so exactly. i think that there's uh, there's a lot to be said for the efficacy of it mm. i don't know how much like I'm, I'm happy to watch a horrible film if it's got sort of like effects in it or yeah. know, something that that elevates it but when it's just people being nasty to each other with no like no craft that specifically appeals to me i find it i find it difficult to wade through like i think i saw it around about the same time i saw the ordeal which i loved yeah 
because it's weird. And and I suspect a lot of the efficacy for people who love it in The Strangers comes from the fact that it isn't weird. It's very normal. It's very very real worldy. It's believable in that way. Um, but yeah, I like a bit more a bit more psychotronica. Yeah, well, it, it's it's interesting, you know, uh, Anton. You know, I'm not going to go into the the recontextualization because you know that that's for the booklet, and you know, I certainly wouldn't want to to spoil that. Um, but there, there's stuff in there that kind of that I hadn't really thought about or, or realized. You know, he he compares it to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, and he also talks about it in it, it's almost like a French extreme film in the in the way he he talks about it and yeah and and the fact that it was inspired by the Manson murders something that I absolutely didn't think about but makes perfect sense yeah yeah I just yeah I I definitely think it's worth a, a revisit I I remember again around about the same time I saw Eels them yeah which I yeah. also didn't like very much. Right, but but I but I love like L'Interieur, um, Satan. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't a massive fan of Frontiers, right? But, like, yeah. So I, I've still not quite been able to put inside. My on exactly inside what it is, is great. L'Interieur, yeah, 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 it's, yeah, yeah. yeah well, that's that's for me. That's the best of that lot. Like, if and it's someone it's not a million a miles properly, away from from the strangers. But it's oh my god! Effects wise, it's a million miles away from the strangers. Yeah, no, like it's gotcha. a, yeah, yeah, yeah. like it's <laughs> like you've got some of the most insane, and it's and I would say it's much. I'd, I'd say like actually events wise, it's much more extreme. Like it, the thing is, yeah. when you're dealing with the grotesque, it's that there's that line at which things become absurdist. Mm. There's a fantastic uh, there's a fantastic piece. Uh, I don't remember where it's from. Uh, written about the cinema of Terry Gilliam, talking about how his absurd, his uh, love with the grotesque, his yeah. like, love of the grotesque, and the idea that these things like tread a very fine line between upsetting and farcical. And and he will, you know, when he's at his best, he will straddle that line beautifully, and he'll be able to step with one foot on each side of it throughout a movie, taking you through these emotionally harrowing moments and these like quite slapsticky moments. And I think that. Inside, L'Interieur does that really well, but but lives more on the absurd side, whereas um, uh, Strangers is is firmly on the real and upsetting side. Yeah, no, I, even though I it's not that's... as vi- not as graphic as yeah. uh, as Inside. No, I, I I think that's absolutely fair enough. Um, right, shall we move on to? Oh, have you got another one? No, no, no. I've done, you've done, done, you've done both um, yours. Yeah, it's it's my usual I've, confusion. Um, yeah, let's go on to extra features, extra features, extra features, extra features, e- extra features. features. Right now, I've I've got a request for the future of extra features, Dan. Can you like research, like just come up with some sort of speech or just some sort of thing that you want to say for a long time? Because this is going to be another one where I'm going to be talking for a while. And I don't like hogging any <laughs> section of this podcast. Um, I'm more interested in hearing what you've got to say. So, yeah, if you Coming can prepare up next extra on features, Dan rants. yeah, just Dan rants. Oh, please, please, God, um, because I'd like to use this extra features to talk about genre festivals in October um, because there's a, a few things going on and I'm going to be covering all of them in upcoming episodes of this podcast in extra features. So. 
you'll get that and you'll get Dan rants in the future. So um, first, Maybe. the night... Well, definitely, please, God. Um, yeah, so first, the, the night stream festival lineup was announced today. Uh, that runs from the 8th to the 11th of October. And it's basically a team effort by five genre festivals who've um, combined to ensure that fans can still see tons of movies that would have played during a normal year. Um, it combines Boston Underground, Brooklyn Horror, North Bend, Overlook and Popcorn Frights, um, yeah, yeah. which is pretty amazing. Um, and all the proceeds will go to the filmmakers at the festival, Dan, imagine that, um, as well as local charities and businesses who are suffering from the pandemic, as well as obviously the organisers themselves to cover their costs. And I think that's a wonderful way of running something like this. Um, so I'm going to be covering it. Um, you can expect to hear about Quentin Dupro's Mandibles. Mandibles. Um, yes, yes, which is um, very exciting about a couple of guys who find a giant fly in their trunk and decide to make money from it very very excited about that one um also black bear which sounds great um that stars aubrey plaza and it's about a filmmaker who gets obsessed with his hosts at a rural retreat um and then the doorman um which is kitamura's new film um the guy who versus uh that sounds nuts so yeah, um, there are loads. I won't go on and on about them. I think there's like 40 films or something, um, but I'll be talking about my favourites on an upcoming episode. Uh, we also have the London Just Film to, Festival. To, oh, go on. To interrupt yeah. you very, very briefly yeah, yeah. on that, Sam. Please, tickets, please, I think tickets, tickets have gone on sale for that one um, yes. as well. And they're like $25 for tickets. It's astonishingly affordable uh, yeah. and it's a hell of a lineup. It really is like you know. It, it's just it, yeah. It's a wonderful thing they've done. I should um, I should say tickets start from twenty five dollars. I think. Yeah, there's a couple are. of options. Um, yeah. I think you know you get to see a certain number of films for that, and I think there's a more expensive but it's a lot. option. But yeah, and also you know if you get that pass, do make sure that you're organised because I think it does involve. It's one of these that involves kind of limited places in the screenings kind of like a normal cinema yes. you know when it sells out it sells out so so yeah do do um have a look at the night streams website all the information will be there yeah and so as i said the london film festival runs in october as well i will finally get to see possessor which dan yeah. worked on um and yeah i got the first press screening list through today they kind of do it weekly um in blocks and in the first week i'll have the new one from abel ferrara siberia um, Relic, the horror movie exploring dementia, yes. and The Disciple, which is um, about classical music in India. Um, and that one won the Critics Award and the Screenplay Prize in Venice. So um, that high sounds like it's very high quality as well. So I'll, I'll be talking about uh, the best of that lot in an upcoming episode. And last but definitely not least, the Arrow Video Fright Fest. Um, now that has sadly had to cancel its in-person edition um, because of the second wave of the pandemic in the UK and 
you know it's really rising and especially in london um but across the country so um they've they've had to move that online um and so that means that there will be more films in the digital version there was always it was always planned that there'd be a secondary digital version and it just means that that's the whole thing now um and i'll also be covering that so the lineup hasn't been announced yet but there were a lot of cool films in the original announcement so i hope uh they will carry over um but yeah that will be in an upcoming episode of the podcast so lots and lots of film stuff to get excited about no one is ever going to see me again because i'm going to be watching i think like seven or eight films a day (laughs) for a month (laughs) um but no i'm excited about it um yes and one more thing for this extra features a very special thing um i have an exclusive interview with friend of the podcast charlie steeds um you will know charlie from our very first live episode where we pulled him down from the audience and you'll also know him from his his uh, official guest status in the next live episode we did uh, for fright fest and he has a new film a werewolf in england which is out today on dvd for 7.99 on amazon so i caught up with charlie about it and about his 2020 in general a year where he's had five new films play to audiences um which christ is crazy <laughs> um so yeah let, let's let's start by talking to charlie about um some of those films uh have a little listen a werewolf in england is out on DVD today in the UK as this podcast goes up. Um, But you've got three other movies out this year, so four movies in total in 2020. Uh, Can you tell us about all of them? Yeah, so um, An English Haunting came out in May uh, in England and in the US, and it's a haunted house movie. It's like a sort of traditional, very old-fashioned, very slow-burning, mysterious ghost story inspired by things like The Changeling and Burnt Offerings. Uh, So if you're a fan of that sort of English ghost... Well, those aren't English, but this is a very English-type ghost story in that sort of style. So that's that one. Um, Then I had out The Barge People in the US um, on Blu-ray and DVD. And that I actually shot that way back in 2017. And that film is it's a sort of slasher movie set on the canal. It's a bit of a hills have eyes, but on the English countryside canal with uh, fish mutant people coming to hack up a bunch of travellers. And it's a sort of survival horror with sort of VHS vibes. And that premiered at Fright Fest last year. And then just dropped on Amazon Prime in this country is Vampire Virus, which we collaborated on together yeah. uh, as co-script writers. And that's a sort of erotic, neon-lit, very colourful, modern, sexy vampire film. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that one. Uh the it, it was released. I literally I was scrolling through Amazon Prime, and there it was. <laughs> Nobody told me it was coming, so um, uh, I still need to like sort of go and promote that a little bit. But it's free to watch on Amazon Prime. And then um, last but not least is a werewolf in England, which we shot. It's the only one that I shot this year um, and finished editing throughout lockdown. And it's a Victorian era werewolf movie um about a parish councillor and a criminal who are 
handcuffed together on the way to their court trial, travelling by horse and carriage and get caught up in a storm and have to take refuge at an old inn where the innkeepers may or may not be feeding the guests to their werewolves <laughs> that live in the nearby woodlands as some sort of ancient pact, which is a bit of a spoiler, but you know the werewolves are going to come. And then it's sort <laughs> of a it's sort of an all-out gory action creature feature fest, which you described as the Hateful Eight meets Evil Dead 2, low-budget edition, which I like that description. Yeah. It's very campy and theatrical. Yeah, for sure. Like, I definitely saw um, Hateful Eight influences in there and Evil Dead 2, as you say. Also, a little bit of From Dust Till Dawn as well, maybe. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Are there any influences that I missed? Oh, um, let me just think. No, I, I would say that Evil Dead 2 mm. was a huge influence on it. Um, the Hateful Eight one, I guess you're right. It, 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 that must have been an influence, but I don't think I was thinking about that at the time. But of all my movies, this one is, it's really a comedy. It's a comedy horror. I mean, it's full of blood and guts and werewolves. Um, but I'll tell you what wasn't an influence, which is Bloody Dog Soldiers, which it <laughs> says on the DVD cover, inspired by Dog Soldiers. I mean, I've, I like Dog Soldiers. I saw yeah. it once about 10 years ago. But it certainly didn't inspire this film. It's nothing like Dog Soldiers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because I keep seeing people writing about, oh, it says it's inspired by dog soldiers. That could be interesting, but it's not. It's inspired by Evil Dead 2. Excellent. And um, I guess one of the things that reminded me of Hateful Eight was the score, especially like the opening sequence. Um, the score is just insanely good. Um, how did you feel when you heard it for the first time and what kind of conversations did you have with your composer? Yeah, well, I had another composer attached originally who then had to pull out because of all the sort of to and fro and of lockdown and work coming and going. Uh, so then I had to get in touch with this Italian composer uh, who ended up doing the score. And it was quite a, it was a very fast turnaround. Um, when I first heard the score, well, in fact, the score came a really long way between the first version I heard of it and then kind of the, just the second draft uh, it came a huge way. So when I heard the first version, I mean, because oh, I was on such a tight deadline with this film, all I heard was, you know, all the places where it wasn't working. So I gave loads of notes, but our influences were stuff like Hellraiser, mm. specifically Hellraiser 2, like that big main theme, um, probably a couple of Ennio Morricone tracks as well, like all this sort of stuff. Um, uh, those were all the influences. So uh, it all came together really fast. And then I'd say with this film, when I finally, because I was editing the film, when it finally went into 4K and was graded and was finished and the sound went in, the music went in, the whole film just sprung to life in a way that kind of shocked me. You know, I'm, so, I'm really pleased with this film. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a filmmaker who's always pleased with the films. Um, but I really like this film. Uh, you're not supposed to say that, but I do. For what it is, I really enjoy it. And I do. I love the music. He's done a really great job. It's so good. Why aren't we allowed to say that we like our own films, Charlie? Well, in your case, I know you don't <laughs> follow the rule, but <laughs> some of us, <laughs> the rest of us, well, you know, you don't want to be that filmmaker that's, you know, loving their own work. Is that me, I mean, is that me Charlie? 
<laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> but uh, usually when you've finished editing it and you've watched it a hundred times, you never want to see the bloody thing ever again. That's how I usually feel. And then usually about a year down the line, I watch it and I go, oh, that's not actually as bad as I remember. Because all you remember is the, you know, the bits you needed to fix and that bit didn't work and that bit made you cringe. But with this film, uh, I'm very happy with it. Excellent. And you should be. Um, and, and it features several of your regular cast. Uh, it does. But there's a, a major new face, uh, Reese Connolly, who we actually saw in a, a play together last year. Um, how did he fit into the gang? Yeah, I mean, perfectly well. This is Reese's first ever screen appearance of anything, which is just insane, really, because he's the lead role. But as you say, I mean, I first saw him on stage as a, as a one-man show, and he blew me away. And then you and I saw him uh, in a what was it, like a Christmas ghosty show or Halloween-y ghosty show? Yeah. Um, and he was great in that too. And we were discussing at the time, we need to get this guy in a movie. This guy is so good. Um, so I didn't know how it was going to go, but yeah, he fit totally in right away um, and so quickly got the hang of everything, you know, cheating things for camera, getting the eye line, you know, even because with this film we had a lot of scheduling nightmares, you know, there are a lot of scenes where he's acting, but there's no actor off camera to act back to him. So he's having to fake his eye line and he's having to like sort of feed lines from actors that aren't even there, but he just got it right away. Um, and he's, he's, he does such a great job in the movie. Yeah, I was really happy. Yeah, he's really charismatic and just, yeah, like the camera absolutely loves him. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm assuming you'll work with him again. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay, good. Um, and Death Ranch is playing Grimfest in October, uh, huh? another 2020 film. Um, what should audiences expect from that? Well, they should expect um, lots of action and gore and uh, my African-American characters on a bloody rampage against the KKK. So it's kind of like it's very black exploitation, grindhouse inspired. Um, it's about these siblings who are on the run and they hide out in this old ranch. And what they don't realize is the ranch is the meeting grounds of a KKK cult who are also cannibals. Um, so it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't all go in their favor. Apart from without spoiling the film, it's a revenge movie. It's a very cathartic movie, um, and you'll never have seen the KKK get slashed up into so many bloody bits. <laughs> yeah, that is a fantastic way of describing it. I loved uh, Death Ranch. Um, and that cast is amazing. Um, can you talk a little bit about working with them? Yeah, I mean, they were, they were all fantastic because I went out to Tennessee to shoot the film and I'd never met any of these guys before. I just cast them all through the internet, basically. But um, we shot the film really quickly. It was only a 15-day shoot. Um, and just instantly, we all connected through the script. Like, we all really liked the script that I put together. The cast seemed to really respond to it. And I think because I was, you know, this guy over there from London, um, everyone was so respectful of me and me being there and the script. Um, so everyone was just, like, incredibly well-behaved. Uh, and incredibly professional and just, I mean, they honestly put 
their all into every part of the film, which was a big ask. When you see how extreme the film goes in terms of torture and, and uh, all the stuff that goes on, they were just, they were amazing and the loveliest people. But of all my films, Death Ranch was just so much fun. We had so much fun making it. Filmmaking shouldn't be as easy as that was, but it was pure, easy fun. Which, yeah, I mean, compared to something like my werewolf film, which was torturous. Um, yeah, it was it was a great time. Excellent. And what's next for you? What does your 2021 look like? Well, I don't know, actually, because I've got a bunch of things on the horizon, but I actually don't know what's going to come next. Um, I don't know. I honestly, I don't know. I mean, you're on the set of a film right now that you're directing. Can you say anything about that? Or Yeah, well, all I can say about that is, I haven't told you this, but I've just changed my mind and I'm not doing this film now. Oh, right. Okay. Bloody so, <laughs> I, I'm, on the set, I'm on the set, set building. Um, but things are just... It doesn't feel like the exact right time to make this particular story. Right. So... Uh, so I've just said to the cast literally today, let's just postpone and wait for it to be the right time. Okay. And is is that to do with um, coronavirus or because obviously... Yeah, it's, it's a little bit coronavirus related because I was... The film is actually set in Kentucky. Mm. Um, it's, just, it, it's, it's intended to be a slasher movie set in the 80s, set in Kentucky. Um, so here I am in Cornwall ready to shoot with my set sort of half constructed and this old American RV that I've bought <laughs> specifically for the film. Um, and uh, yeah, set in Kentucky is it's essentially a slasher movie with a killer scarecrow, but there's, there's other elements in there that makes it unlike any slasher we've ever seen, mm. but that would kind of be spoiling the surprise. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd written a role specifically for, one of the actors from Death Ranch who's over in Florida who I wanted to fly over and I can't because of coronavirus and, uh, you know, the passport office over there is extremely slow at the moment. Um, so it's just little things like that that I've just decided, you know what, I, it's not worth fighting against it. Like, let's wait until it's the right time. Final question. Have you seen anything good recently, like in the past couple of weeks, anything that you'd recommend? Oh, I just got the Blu-ray release of um, the old TV version of A Woman in Black. Oh, cool. Uh, the Woman in Black. And I'd never seen it before, and it's been restored on Blu-ray, um, and I really enjoyed watching that. Um, I also watched Deep Blue Sea 3. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not making a recommendation here, but I did quite enjoy it. <laughs> um, it was better than it should have been. Um, but yeah, aside from that, I've not really had time to like sit and watch stuff. There's loads of stuff that I want to watch, but yeah, I've just not had time. I've just got Doctor Sleep on DVD, which I think is my favourite horror film of last year. Mm. So I'm excited to give that a revisit. Uh, but yeah, apart from that, I've not really been having much time to watch anything. I, I think that Woman in Black, Deep Blue Sea 3 and Doctor Sleep combined is the perfect description of feeds. Uh, <laughs> So, um, yeah, good <laughs> recommendations. And, uh, yeah, right. thanks very much for your time, Charlie. No worries. Thank you. And there we go. That was Charlie Steeds. Um, now, Britain's Dan... Takeshi Miko. 
Yeah, exactly. Like, just ridiculous. Um, but, yeah, Dan, you, you haven't heard that interview yet, but at the end there, I spoke to Charlie about what his plans are next. And it sounds like he might slow down a little bit um, from what he said. Um, he was he, on the set of his new film, which he's decided not to do, um, partly because of uh, coronavirus. And I know a lot of people listen to this podcast to get away from thoughts of, of what's currently going on in the world, the global situation. Um, but I do think that we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about it a little bit as we go into the second wave, certainly in terms of how it's affecting film and filmmaking and filmmakers. Um, what are your thoughts on this, Dan? Because I've been talking for quite a long time. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I've done um, I've done a few projects now. I've been very lucky to have had work pick up pretty immediately after lockdown. Uh, a little slower at first, and and now you know I'm out in Malta on one at the moment. I did a full yeah. feature um, just before we left that hopefully I'll be able to talk about more in the near future. For that, we did some pickups for one that was shooting before lockdown. I did some puppet work um, and stuff. Oh, for I'm very excited one. about the puppet. Yeah, the puppet's going to be... Yeah, that's fun. That, so that's for um, that's for Ruth Paxton's picture, A Banquet, uh, which was being produced through T-Shop, uh, who I've done a number of pictures with over the years. Um, and that's really fun. Ruth was great to work with. I've done a music video for Run the Jewels. Um, I've provided some, some props and puppets and masks and stuff for some Disney stuff. So like it's been it's been pretty solid, you know. Like I've been very lucky to to be able to to go back to work and also to have my my team back in as well. Yeah, um, we've been running at slightly reduced numbers. Uh, I've got a decent amount of space. Um, one of our staff is at risk, so he kind of gets his own room. And then the rest of us, you know, we're all masked up. We all keep distance. We're not allowed to make tea and coffee for each other anymore. But otherwise, it's been pretty much the same. I mean, you know, we wear masks at work a lot anyway. The onset stuff has been different. But as long as people are sensible, you know, it's gone from, uh, you know, when you get a job offer now, uh, the first question has changed to uh, who's your COVID supervisor. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, and I've had a lot of tests. Uh, I will tell you that the, the people who are roughest with their COVID tests are the Maltese. <laughs> oh, God, who, right, yeah, yeah. I feel like I've been fucking lanced in the face. <laughs> <laughs> But but yeah no I mean you know it's it is it, it's 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 a peculiar balance of everything has changed and yet it's all exactly the fucking same. Yeah, um, I think that what we're probably going to see is the big big projects starting to shut down again, uh, especially as we come into the second wave space. Obviously, as of as of the recording of this, I think Batman's just shut down again up at Warner Brothers Studios in Leavesden. Yeah, it's difficult. I, I like yeah, that, the one I mean we that just was finished. Yeah, sorry. Well, no, I was just going to say that was sort of one of the most shocking ones for me, um, you know, when it shut down because Robert Patterson got COVID. Um, yeah, I, I just found that shocking because I kind of just assumed that studios would be so absolutely nuts when it comes to safety measures that everyone would be completely protected. I mean, I guess Robert but Pattinson is, is a law unto himself, Um you know, and that's not a criticism. I love that actor. I think he's fucking amazing. Um, but but yeah, you're saying it, he it, doesn't it, strike you as a kind of man who washes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, we've all seen the pictures. We've all uh, we've all read his recipes for preparing pasta. Um, 
grubby Robert. <laughs> um, I think it's it's difficult. I mean, fuck, I don't know. I have friends on um, on Jurassic World, and like you know, the onset team were being tested three times a week, uh, as well as you know being in the bubble. But they were allowed to go home at night. So right, you know, how okay. much control yeah. do you really yeah. have? The the one we just yeah. finished, the smaller one, because it was only probably like a hundred people on the whole film. We all just lived in a hotel out in the out in the woods <laughs> for the duration of the shoot. I actually I was one of the very few people that came and went throughout. And every time I went, I had to be tested uh, before I got there, and then mm. once again when I got there. Right. And then I wasn't, and I was isolated, and I wasn't allowed onto set until the second results had come back, and everyone had their temperature done every day, and mm-hmm. you know, so they were really solid about it. But but I think the big difference is that they were keeping everyone in lockdown, like a mini lockdown there. Like no one was going out to the shops, no one was allowed to leave the the area. We were just there for the entire duration of the shoot. And you can't do that with a film as big as Batman. Yeah. You know, quite I, aside I just... from the fact that those people probably don't want to do that. Yeah. It's yeah, much I mean, with that many people. Yeah, absolutely, and and obviously everyone's safety worries me. You know, it, it worries me that you're on set in Malta right now. I'm sure, like you say, they're taking every precaution, but you know, it is it is it's scary stuff. Um, I know you're safe, but it's still worrying. Um, I'm, I'm very militant. Like I'll shout at yeah. the director if he's got his mask on. <laughs> Right, good, <laughs> fantastic. And I can very much picture that. That's fantastic. Um, but yeah, and it, it also worries me that all these movies are being shifted. Um, you know, uh, Disney moving all of their films pretty much. You know, there, there's some ones that people are less excited about coming out this year, but, you know, Black Widow and Eternals and all those stuff that you'd expect to, to do big numbers have been moved to next year. Um and while I don't want to encourage people to come back to the cinemas unless they're safe, I just want the cinemas to be safe so these films can play. Um, so cinemas are still there when it's time to show the delayed films next year. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah I get you. It's, it's fucking hard, you know? Like, yeah. I saw a thing today saying that um, Jordan Peele had, like, wanted... like specifically wanted Candyman to be delayed because he yeah. didn't want to be responsible for telling people to go back to the cinemas. Obviously, Christopher Nolan doesn't give a fuck if people die. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, he's much, yeah, that, that's a strong he's statement. Much... And let's say allegedly, and let's say to Christopher Nolan's <laughs> lawyers right now, Dan is joking. Um, that's, that was clearly a, a sarcastic remark. But um, It was indeed. But his priority is the film being in the cinema. And, and as exactly. we know by the fact that the reason it had to keep on being relayed is, the, delayed is that it was contractually released in the cinema. Yeah, like that I was, mean, they it, couldn't release it without a cinema release because it was in the contract that it had to be in the cinema. It's such a difficult balance. It's such a difficult balance. Like, you know, people complained about um, Bill and Ted face the music only being at cinemas in the UK and when it was already out on VOD in the States. And I saw some film Twitter people um, openly saying, oh, well, I have to resort to other means. Um, you know, go to the high seas, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, dude, what are you doing? You are literally killing our industry right now. Like, I, I know, you know, there are different arguments about piracy and all that kind of thing. And, you know, uh, I, I'm not a fan, but especially not right now, because if you're going to do that, then buy a fucking ticket for the film 
even if you're not going to go to the cinema to see it, buy a ticket. Um, you know, uh, it, it just drives me crazy when I see stuff like That's that. That's voting with your wallet. That's exercising your rights. Yeah, like I'd say if you're there's a there's a there's a moral grey zone there that maybe people can feel comfortable in. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, don't, anyway, yeah, don't fucking kill. Don't kill the Prince Charles people, please. Exactly. Do not kill the Prince Charles. Right, that, that veered into fuck, Sam's fuck rant. Fuck City World. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that veered into... Well, let, uh, all right, let's not get into that. But um, I just love cinemas and I love the cinema experience. We all do. Everyone listening to this podcast does. And, you know, we really need to protect it however we can. But I've got a question uh, for you, Sam. Not at the expense of your health. Yes, Dan, give me this question, Sam, please. if you... C- if you could save only three brick-and-mortar cinemas in London... Oh, wow. Who would you is, choose? Oh, man, that is such a such a great question. Obviously, the Prince Charles Cinema. Um, yeah. How about we take it in turns, Dan? What, what would you save? Are we doing the three between us, or are we doing three each? Let's do three each and take it in turns. Okay, I mean, because obviously my first one is also going to be the Prince Charles, so that's unhelpful. <laughs> All right, well, um, my next one's um, going to be the Peckinplex. <laughs> oh, the Peckinplex is great, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Genesis over in Mile End. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, shit, the last one. I mean, uh, this is going to be really, like, annoying for people listening to this, but the Soho Screening Room, even though... Um, you know, it's not one that you can pay to go to. I have lots of special memories associated with that screening yeah, room. That's very and nice. if there aren't any films to play in it, then, you know, that could very well die as well. So, yeah, it's it's an impossible situation. Who knows um, how the best way to navigate it is. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about this in the future, I'm sure. But not in the next episode. You know, we'll try and ration these out because it is depressing. And I do know that a lot of people listen to this podcast to not think about this kind of thing but you know some people might be interested in our thoughts on it i'm just looking at the list of what's next um gamera guardian of the universe Gamera's next gamera's next hey here's a fun thing in rainy dog at the beginning of the movie he's watching gamera versus viras i love it and it all comes together perfectly at the end right on that note let's do our social media very quickly dan how can people find you uh, I am at 13fingerfx uh, on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, follow me at, on those places. Uh, Twitter is increasingly becoming me getting excited about Possessor. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to be more effects-focused on Instagram, uh, mostly because my dogs have their own <laughs> their own Instagram now. But yeah, it's it's those things. Follow me. Say hi. Tell me what Do you s- think of films we've recommended. Yes, do say hi. Um, yep, I'm on Twitter at Sam Ashurst. I'm going to give you my SoundCloud this time because uh, the twat, the twat that I am, uh, the you know the Nathan Barley style twat that I am, I have recently started to do synth music again, um, and you can find that on SoundCloud if you search for VHS Death Scene. Death Scene is all one word. Um, and uh, I did quite a bit of music over the course of quarantine, lockdown, all that stuff, and so I've put some of it online. I would like it if you listen to it. One of them samples uh, Pulp Fiction, one of them samples Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and most of them don't sample anything, but they do sound like imaginary scores for weird science fiction films. So um, VHS Death Scene is my SoundCloud. Right. Also at Trashbat. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you came in there with that to undermine me. I needed it. Um, right. Uh, thank you so much for listening, especially all the way to the end. Uh, of oh this my God, yeah, that's been a long one. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. And we promise to be more professional and next more time. precise next time. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye.